Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. Testing the mics there. It's coming up to two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Oh, maybe listening via rrr.org.au as I have been all week. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton and joining me on Skype is... Dr Beach. Hey, Dr Beach. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And... Cade Mills as well. Hey, Cade. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I can see Dr Beach. It's been a while since I've caught up with him. <laughs> and I can see you, Cade, your beautiful face. <laughs> oh, shucks. And neither of you can see me, but let's uh, let's see how this travels over the next sort of fifty-eight minutes. And um, I'm and uh, Nerida is here with us as well, panelling for day. Kent is here uh, in the green room, um, and uh, we'll have this show up as a podcast. I keep forgetting to thank Kent, so thank you, Kent, very much for the wonderful work that you do. Big thanks also to Tim Thorpe for um, a wonderful program, as always, slaying me with his songs this morning and his tracks. His uh, his well, his tracks. Some of them are songs. I don't know if there are any instrumentals in there today. Um, and thank you, Andrew, very much for Soulful Bits. And, of course, you can catch Tim next Saturday morning at 6am for another six hours of wonderful vinyl bits, getting us through the weekend. Uh, on today's program, shortly we're going to be joined by our very own baykeeper, Neil Blake. Neil's going to be talking to us about, uh, uh, look, the arrival of some jellyfish. Uh, there's a lot of jellies in the bay. I've just seen some footage on the socials this morning about a lot of jellies in the bay. This one uh, has a very interesting name, which I'll let Neil pronounce because I'm reading it thinking I'm probably going to get it wrong. I think it's Aquaria, but we'll we'll find out. Um, and uh, some sightings of it in the mouth of Port Phillip Bay during the week. It's quite uh, interesting that these jellyfish should be here. Uh, they are pelagic, as jellies are, but um, this one, the range is normally in the eastern Pacific Ocean, so it's quite unusual to find them this far west. So Neil's going to talk to their presence and some potential connection to climate change, but also potentially the easterly winds associated with our brand new La Nina cycle. We're then going to catch up with Dave Donnelly from Killer Whales Australia and Dolphin Research Institute and Radio Marinara uh, about the, again, some other, lots of interesting sightings happening at the moment. This one is of some orcas just off Torquay. You might have seen some um, footage or some pictures of uh, orcas. We do tend to see them from time to time, um, particularly off Phillip Island, uh, particularly around this time of the year. But there's quite a few of them in this group. So we'll catch up with Dave about that. Then, Cade, you've lined up a very special guest for us. I have. I've got Jonathan Davey, who's the Executive Director of Seafood Industry Victoria. Anthony and I had him on in April talking about um, how the industry's had to deal with COVID since basically January because it um, hit their export market. But that also means they've had sort of a long time to sort of adapt and change. So we're going to talk about some of the, I guess, the positives to come out of the pandemic um, and how sort of it's basically going to benefit Victorians because they're going to be able to get fresh local seafood um, a lot easier. So we're going to chat to him about that. Excellent. Very much looking forward to catching up with Jonathan. And then Dr. Beach. Lots uh, of well, beach. Uh, yeah. Hi, Brian. I know that you believe in things like the Loch Ness Monster and sea serpents <laughs> and all of that, but um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to dispel some of those myths that you might have. Um, and well, this is a paper. This is a wonderful paper that I found by a guy called Robert France, who's um, 
talking to us about misconstrued sea serpent sightings around the British Isles and um, how a lot of it's got to do, well, virtually all of it, all of it, in fact, according to Robert Francis, got to do with um, entanglement. So nets and all of that kind of stuff that we chuck into the water to try and catch fish. And, of course, we've got whales and other poor, unsuspecting marine creatures who are dragging this stuff around and have been for a couple of hundred years since we've been chucking that crap in the water. And a really fun, interesting paper that I'll go through at the end of the show on that. I'm really looking forward to hearing about that. And just for the record, uh, I'm not a believer in the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> oh, Ness, come on. I've, I've, I've seen models of Nessie around your house. <laughs> So not true. Um, all right, Cade, I believe you have a weather forecast for us. I do. Look, today we've got light southerly, so the winds are good for us with a top of 17. There was a high tide at 6.46 this morning and a low tide at 12.20. That's at the heads for those that need the tide times. And there's a couple of foot of surf around. And with that light southerly, it might be a bit choppy. But look, if you can go surfing, I wouldn't be complaining. Um, tomorrow is going to be 24 with some northerlies and then... Look, we've got some spring weather. We go Tuesday 19, Wednesday top of 26, Thursday all the way up to 29 before we come crashing back down again on Friday down to 19 and then Saturday 18. So we're, while we're riding the corona coaster, the weather is doing much the same. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Classic spring weather. That's fantastic. I love this time of year. At least something's dynamic. At least we're able to sort of experience some sort of change. I love how I, like in my mindset, I'm like, okay, I can put the coats away. Uh, oh, no, we can't. Got to get them out again. Oh, we can put them away. Oh, no, we can't. Got to get them out again. So, yeah, keeps us guessing. Who loves it? I love it. Um, wanted to put out, I know you've got a bit of news there, Kate. Before I forget, I just wanted to put out a big thanks to all Triple uh, R subscribers for our Radiothon. The prize winners have been announced. Um, you uh, can check them out for yourself on the Triple R webpage, rrr.org.au. And uh, congratulations if you're a prize winner. And if you weren't, well, look, you, you've already won a prize because you're part of this wonderful family that we call Triple R, that you call Triple R. And um, before too long, you'll be getting um, the, 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 the very lovely new sticker, special 2020 edition of the sticker in the mail, and you can slap it wherever you want. So um, thank you very much, um, quite, you know, from the bottom of our hearts for everyone who subscribed this year. And it, it meant so much to us, not just on this show, but everyone at the station for keeping the station going. And I've been thinking a bit about it, about, you know, what Triple R means, particularly during this pandemic. And um, as, you know, more than ever, as the mantra was this year. So thank you very much. You're not only helping keep the station going, but you're making people's lives better and uh, really mean that too. All right, Kay, quick bit of news and then let's put on some music. Oh, look, I just have to second everything you said there, Bron, and the stickers make you a better driver. When you put it on your car, <laughs> you will find people will let you in or they'll smile and give you a wave. It's sort of you become part of the Triple R bumper sticker community. Um Last week I heard you guys talking about my octopus, the teacher. Mm. Before that, before that was around, long before that, we had a guy, well, we have a guy called Mark Norman. So oh, he's yeah. a friend of the show, been on many times. He's the chief conservation scientist at Parks Victoria. Uh, but before that, he was at the museum. And before, before that, he was sitting at Pope's Eye looking at our um, fish for this year's fish count, the Victorian scaly fin. Now, all divers and probably most snorkelers will know the Victorian scaly fin. It's an aggressive territorial little fish that, especially during its breeding season, which we're coming up to, it'll swim out of the hole and attack you. Um, so Mark Norman, I'm calling this my frenemy, the scaly fin, 
because they're they're quite friendly, but they also um, quite social distancing. Mm. He spent 160 hours sitting underwater watching these things and recording all their movements and their behaviours and their territoriality. So we've actually lined him up for the... Oh, no. We've lost you, Uh Kate, right at the critical moment that you're about to announce. (laughs) Kate's frozen. I can see him on his guide. He's just kind of like doing nothing. He's like, (laughs) It was right at that second he was about to announce what the... uh, And I actually don't know... Who he's talking about is our Mark Norman, isn't he, Bron? He's he's very much our Mark Norman on Radio Marinara. We've had Norm on for many, many years. I, in fact, studied my first science degree with Norm. Love him dearly. What a wonderful champion. And he is an octopus expert as well as being an expert on scaly fins. So he's our, he's our octopus man. And I was very much thinking of him as I was watching that that beautiful show that you um, reviewed last week. Uh, octopus, my teacher. Yeah. In fact, he, he was in a way my octopus teacher because he was a tutor of mine at uni when I was going through. And um, I could call him my octopus teacher in a yeah. way. 914, you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. It's time to welcome into the... Uh, oh, Cade, have we got you back? I am here, Bron. I'm back. <laughs> Before we get Neil on the line. Um, yes, we, we, you dropped out right at that pivotal moment. We were about to announce uh, the event which is taking place involving Mark Norman. It is. So on the 22nd of October at 6 o'clock online, of course, as everything is, if you go to the Victorian National Parks Association's Nature at Home webinar page and look for the grouchy and the graceful. So the grouchy is the Victorian scaly fin, which Mark is going to be sharing his 160 hours of observations on. And we also have Joni Pinney Fitzsimmons, who is a PhD researcher in New South Wales, who's studying smooth and eagle rays and how fishing discards alters their behaviours. So she's going to come in and tell us about some of the work she's done tracking them as well. So as I said, at the VMPA Nature at Home webinar page, jump on, um, starting at six o'clock, obviously it is free. You can sit at home in your PJs and have a beer and hear Mark talk about his... um, numerous hours underwater and he's a fantastic presenter he absolutely is if you've never caught mark before presenting on something i highly recommend getting onto this one it's one of those things as you said kate you can do it from the comfort of your own home sometimes you know having to head out and uh having (laughs) have we lost kate again (laughs) yep i think we've lost kate yeah, we have. All right. <laughs> I'll just I'll just say again. No, yeah. he's back again. He's back. Oh, we got you back again. Oh, we're having fun today. <laughs> you think, we are, uh, yes. <laughs> Dr. Uh, Beach and I are having a great time. Hey, yeah, look. yeah, we're fine. I <laughs> 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 was you that dropped out there. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sitting here sweating bricks, but really, who cares about that? Let's go to <laughs> Neil Blake. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Bron. Can you hear me? It's loud and clear, Neil. How are you? I'm very good. I'm well, thank you. Um, Lots of fun in the studio today. Yeah, the gremlins are making life interesting for us. Let's talk about jellies. Jellies in the bay. What's been going on? Yeah, pretty exciting, really. Uh, I got a call from, uh, or a text actually, from Judy Muir uh, on the last day of September and uh, to say that she'd seen a few of these uh, uh, unknown uh, jellyfish that had uh, turned up down on the peninsula, and particularly at Blair Gary, uh, in masses. Uh, and uh, about a fist size, and they'd been stranded up against groins and at, uh, near, near the Blair Gary Yacht Club. Uh, so 
Yeah, so that was quite fascinating. And then uh, we were trying to work out what they might be because uh, Judy didn't actually have a pick because she was uh, walking in slight darkness. <laughs> so when she went back, they, they disappeared. Can uh, we just um, mention too, isn't that fascinating that someone would be able to see a jelly in the water and go, that's not our jelly? Like that's not the regular jellies that we might get in the bay. It just goes yeah. to show, and it, the power of community networks, I'm just going to throw that one in there too, Neil, but just the fact that she would instantly know and know to call you, like how, how wonderful this is. Um, Judy Muir is, she. Yeah, what she doesn't know <laughs> about life in the bay isn't worth knowing, let's right, just say that. Right. Yeah, certainly. Uh, if, if anyone would have seen them before, then Judy would have. Yeah. She's you know, spent a lot of time down on the water and on the beach down, down there. Yeah, so uh, uh, the, the mystery uh, was entertained then. So uh, I discovered that Josie Jones had on her Instagram uh, post uh, actually some footage of uh, this jellyfish that she'd taken underwater and she'd had it identified through iNaturalist. Uh, the web platform uh, as an, and the pronunciation is an interesting one Brock, because the spelling is A-E-Q-U-O-R-E-A mm. uh, and Aquora is, oh. is what I've uh, learned is how it's actually spoken but it doesn't, doesn't look like that um, so but they weren't certain about the actual species, there's a couple of different uh, species of this Aquora, jellyfish uh, but this one, um, the generally the Aquora forscalia, or the many rib, rib jellyfish, uh, is one that's wide ranging, particularly though in the uh, northern hemisphere, and uh, but also in the Pacific to New Zealand. So how frequently they actually turn up there is still remains a question. But uh, they certainly weren't on the uh, radar for uh, Victorian jellyfish there so um, that, that was quite interesting and they move um, with wind and water so the currents that actually direct them rather than uh, using their own energy to, to navigate around unless they're trying to avoid predators or seeking food yeah uh, they're so that their ability to move at a small scale, even though they are pelagic, there's there's only so much that they can do with their distribution. Um, Kate and Dr. Beach, jump in if you have a question for Neil or want to make a comment. I'm just thinking, Neil, of um, a beautiful picture that I was sent by um, a friend of mine. In fact, my sister, her name is Sandy, of course, um, uh, about that showed a a, um, a nautilus being pushed along by a jellyfish. That was yeah. amazing. <laughs> I could see Cade kind of nodding. I don't know if Cade, if you saw that. I saw it too. It was actually by um, Stephen Cudia. So Rudy Cudia is a very well-known photographer, and if you pick up any fish identification books, his name will be associated with it. So it was actually his son, and they took it. And it's believed that the um, paper nautilus uses the stingings, like the jellyfish, sort of as a way to hide. Oh. So to avoid getting eaten, if you hang out with a jellyfish, things are like, oh, I'm not going to go near that. And, you know, by default, it gets protected as well. Oh, how cool. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Really, Actually, Stephen cool. would be someone, interesting photographer to get on to talk about that particular image even. I think Nerida's yeah. got a question, but no, I was just saying what was Neil saying just then. Oh, oh sorry. You go, Neil. I had heard, had heard the report, similar reports of uh, Nautilus associated with jellyfish. So that's definitely an interesting one to follow up on. 
So what do we know about these jellies, Neil? So they've, they've suddenly turned up in the bay. They're not normally here. We know that they're pelagic and they're um, basically they go wherever the currents take them and a little bit the winds as well. What, what's the, uh, the guesstimate of how they've ended up here? Well, uh, that's an interesting one because um, yeah, it's uh, the East Australian current uh, is something that's directed from down uh, from the Coral Sea, which carries warmer waters down past Sydney and to the Tasman Sea. Uh, but it's not clear, though, generally how anything that might be carried on that current would actually turn the corner and come around to the west across uh, Victoria. But uh, I discovered there is such a thing as an east coast low, which is an intense low pressure system which can be hovering over uh, the Tasman Sea. It only lasts a few days, but it's quite probable uh, that uh, the clockwise uh, currents and the intense winds generated by them would actually push uh, stuff uh, to the west across towards Port Phillip Bay. So that that's the best uh, <laughs> explanation that I can come up with at this stage. Uh, but it only occurs, you know, uh, relatively rarely, and we certainly are moving into a, a La Nina phase at the moment after we've had the 2019, the hottest and driest year on record for Australia. Uh, but now all of the conditions for La Nina have uh, been achieved. And that actually, uh, strangely enough, means cooler water temperatures down in the southern part of the temperate part of Australia, uh, which I you know, recall you mentioning before about it's pretty weird that it's so cold in Melbourne still, you know. Uh, and clearly that would be, have something to do with it. So. Um, the Blair Gowrie water temperature uh, I checked uh, the other yesterday was 13.3 degrees, and on average in October it's uh, 14.1. Right, so it really is cooler than it normally is. Yeah, and that's one of the criteria for a La Nina uh, situation is that if the uh, water temperature, sea surface temperature, is 0.8 of a degree cooler than average. So before all, the, before all the climate sceptics jump up and down and say, here, I told you, it's, it's cooler, the Earth's not getting hotter, this is part of a, an, a very natural and normal La Nina cycle. That's correct, yes, that's uh, certainly the case. So um, the question is, though, the, if we want to get in talking about climate change, is the severity of the weather systems, you know, such, such as the East Coast flow that I mentioned before, uh, whether or not... Uh, that's stronger and the last La Nina the major one was in 2010 to 12 and that had Australia's wettest 24 months on record. Yeah right I'm sure our listeners in Warrnambool would be um, nodding their heads in agreement with that one right now uh, in southwestern Victoria in general. Um, Kay, Dr Beach any other questions for Neil? Uh, no, no I don't I, I, I'm just trying to think of a good question but i don't have one okay <laughs> kate i only i had one interesting observation is that the acora within that genus they can actually um reproduce by fission which is basically you know there's one of them there that like, oh, i'm getting a bit overweight i'll just turn into two individuals <laughs> seriously <laughs> yep so they clone themselves they can yeah wow it's incredible not necessarily that particular one but within that ge- um genus they can yeah 
with the specimens that have been found, Neil, have they? You might have said this. Sorry if I've um, just over not heard that part. But um, what's happened to the specimens that were found? Oh well, um, I've seen photographs of them. They, they look more or less deceased on the, on the beach. So they look like a jelly donut, actually. A nice-looking thing, about fist size. But, um, yeah, so uh, I don't know that any have actually been collected to be examined, but uh, there certainly still would be some live ones out there, I'm sure. Neridus just um, uh, made the point um, through a message that uh, hurricanes in the US are already up and more intense than normal. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. All right, Neil. Well, we might move on. It's been fantastic speaking with you as always. We'll catch up with you in a few weeks. Any um, any events that you know of that you want to plug online, I'm guessing? Uh, uh, looking at doing a study on uh, moon snail egg masses. I think that's an interesting one. I saw a report... Uh, a photograph on our naturalist of masses of them that had turned up uh, on the beach at um, Karim, I believe it was, uh, in February. Uh, you know, and it was like the whole beach was just covered in them. And uh, that, that was really fascinating because it occurred three days after a full moon event. And that's a, a speculation that's worth sort of checking on to see whether the connection between moon snail egg masses and and the moon. Uh, so I'm hoping to get some people involved in checking beaches for that. Great. So we'll catch up with you on that in a few weeks' time. And it's actually a perfect sort of next story from our conversation about jellies because people often mistake moon snail egg masses for jellies and they're not. They're obviously egg masses. So we'll, we'll, talk, yeah. about, we'll talk about that next time you come on. That'll be great. Yeah, if I just encourage people interested to look at this particular Acura, though, if they check Josie's Instagram page, it's just share Josie, so you'll find that there. I think it's on the, you've got some pictures on the Marinara Facebook page too, have you, Brian? Yeah, we did. We popped them up there and, and gave a, a nice thank you to Josie for letting us use those images. But um, what was the Instagram page again? Share, share Josie. Share Josie. All right, no worries. I'll look into it and um, pop a link up on our Facebook page to that as well. All right, terrific. Thanks, Neil. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara en tres triple R. Indeed, that is where you are. And uh, the time is 9.28. We're now going to cross to speak with Dave Donnelly about the sightings of these orcas off Torquay this week. How are you, Dave? I uh, can't quite hear you. Um, Nerida, we've got uh, Dave on the phone. Uh, he's on line 10. There we go. Dave, we got you there. Oh, no. I. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not quite sure what to do at this point. Maybe what we might do is hang up. <laughs> Kate's finding this amusing. All right. Um, for some reason, we can't. Oh. Now we've got an empty line. All right. What I might do... Okay, what I might do while we try and get um, Dave, maybe via WhatsApp, Nerida, let's have a crack at that one because he saw that it was coming through. If we can um, maybe get Dave... And what I'm going to do is quickly read from a couple of um, press releases that I have here. One is really exciting, actually. We're going to be following this one up next week. But um, Blast Off, it's a a program that's being that's run by Barton Lynch, who is uh, who's well known to our um, our surfing listeners out there, uh, world champion surfer, and he's had a program running for 15 years that it, it's a really an engagement program 
getting kids uh, who are already surfing connected uh, and, and I guess giving them a platform to show off their surfing skills. So this has been running um, uh, since the September the 14th and it runs through until October the 31st. What Blast Off is is it encourages young surfers from all over the world to submit video footage of themselves showing their stoke in the water and uh, – they have a couple of prizes on offer as well. So we're actually going to be catching up next week. Um, I'm hoping with Barton Lynch to talk about Blast Off 2020, this global video challenge. But I'll just mention this one now because it does close October 31st. So in, you know, a couple of weeks time um, for, you know, if you've got kids out there, obviously, if it, if it works for you, if you're listening in Victoria within your 5K um, from home um, allowance at the moment. Uh, but we know we have listeners sort of all over Australia and really elsewhere in the world as as well so um blast off uh the global video challenge check that one out and hopefully um your your kids if they like surfing might want to be part of that okay i believe we have dave now are you there dave i sure am Brian. good morning <laughs> to you and uh, kate and dr beach I've made things really confusing with Nerida because I've given her your um your, your Skype details. And we were on Skype previously, so I just assumed it was going to be Skype. Fair enough. But anyway, too. the phone line just went. I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> anyway, keep talking. We got gotcha. you. How are you, Dave? I'm very well. Look, I felt very popular this morning. You called me on phone and Skype and WhatsApp. <laughs> was it all three of you calling individually? I think so. You have a very big fan club here, Dave. I do. I'm very very appreciative of that. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, let's talk about these orcas. Lots of excitement. Yes. Mm. So there's, a, there's been a fair bit of killer whale activity over the last week or so, uh, actually a week and a half. But uh, in Victoria, we've been very, very fortunate to have killer whales come to the uh, to the rip at um, in Port Phillip around Point Lonsdale area. And that sighting wasn't confirmed till a little bit later on when we received some video footage and some photos as the animals made their way along the coast and the last time we heard of their location that was validated was just near Apollo Bay. So, so they're on the move, definitely. That's that's uh, pretty exciting. We often get we often get sightings at this time of the year um, uh, around the sort of off Phillip Island, I believe. Is it unusual to have one sort of more towards um, Torquay? Uh, not really, Bron. Um, so Torquay in the west coast of Victoria is well known for killer whale sightings back to uh, the early 2000s. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, this time of year is not a time we expect to see them moving through that region so much, but um, it's, it's usually associated with the bonny upwelling and the productivity on the west coast is when we do see them there and, of course, through winter as well. So um, we're really curious to know which animals these are. Um, unfortunately, the photos that have come through are a little bit distant, so we can't confirm the individuals, but we can confirm the pod was together and moving at varying numbers between three and five individuals with a big male leading that group. That's so cool. Whereabouts are they now? Do we know? Yes, your guess is as good as mine, Bron. <laughs> um, I'd love to know because we've got people sitting on the coast looking for uh, looking for these animals with their long lenses. The people down at Cape Nelson near Portland are fantastic at collecting photographs of blue whales, southern rights, humpbacks and killer whales. And they're very, very excited about the opportunity to see killers again, which uh, we hope they do. And, of course, for the uh, database work, we would love to see those photos if they end up uh, coming to fruition. What's the best way people can get in touch with you, Dave? We're going to have you on the program next week too to talk more, more at length about this and, and other cetacean migration um, things going on. But what's what's the best way people, if they think they can see these killer whales, how can what's the best way they can get in touch with you? 
Uh, the best way we found for people, it seems to be m most user-friendly, is our Facebook page at Killer Whales Australia. Um, usually just by a Facebook message is the best way because we find it hard going through comments and finding everybody's sightings. So that's the best way. Or there is a hotline number on that page, which you can find quite easily, 0401011022, which you guys have dialed this morning. <laughs> so uh, that would be the best way. And I, I did want to say, you know, um, Captain Blake, uh, this morning, those jellies are amazing. And I just want to point out that back in the early 2000s, those those jellies did enter the bay and were collected by Melbourne Aquarium and were actually on display in Melbourne wow. Aquarium for a, a little while because they didn't do so well in captivity. And back then they called them donut jellies. Oh, I think uh, Neil made a reference to that, that, yeah, he was calling them donut jellies. Yeah. There you go. Fantastic. All right. Thanks, Dave. Great catching up with you as always. And we look forward to um, a longer chat next week. Good on you guys. Thanks for having me on this morning. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Bye for Bye -bye. now. Bye. Dave Donnelly there. Killer Whales Australia. And we're talking about killer whales and really looking forward to catching up with him next week. It is 9.35. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 R. Now, uh, yesterday, all sorts of things going on this week. Um, you might have heard Tim Thorpe's tribute to John Lennon yesterday, which was uh, really wonderful to hear. He would have been 80 this week. Um, John Lennon, that is. Um, also this week, uh, Music Victoria have announced the Industry Awards. Um, you might have heard Tim playing um, Chris and Chris Wilson and brilliance this morning but uh, also this week Mary Mehalakos inducted into the Vi Music Victoria Hall of Fame Mary's a dead set legend if you haven't come across her and she and I worked together along with Lisa Guy to run um, a comedy night to raise money for bushfire relief earlier this year um, Mary actually put together I don't know if this has been mentioned but ridiculous number of fundraisers for bushfire relief um, it was well over 10 just pretty much on her own and uh, raised an insane amount of money for groups like Wildlife Victoria and Gippsland Emergency Relief fun. So Mary, I wanted to give you my very own congratulations. Um, it's just wonderful knowing you. Triple R is where you are. The time is 9.41 and uh, yeah, that was Teskey Brothers live at the Forum 2019 and um, there take on their cover of Jealous Guy. I played that one for Mary Mihalakos. Congratulations Mary. Alright, uh, Kate I'm going to throw over to you to introduce our next guest. Yes, our next guest was on the show back in April. At that time, he was telling us how seafood producers had been negotiating with this disruptive beast called COVID since January. Many months have passed since and then unfortunately has not. Uh, good introduction, Kate. Unfortunately, COVID has not. So to check in and how the people that provide us with seafood are going, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back Jonathan Davey, Executive Director of Seafood Industry Victoria. How have you been, Jonathan, since we last spoke? Here we go again. <laughs> Jonathan, have we got you there? I'm here. Yay. Hey. <laughs> did you did, did you um did you hear Cade's uh introduction? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. Don't do it again. All right. Can you do a truncated <laughs> version? I think How we're just introducing you. you. I'll How do are quick, you? the quick summary. We spoke to you in April, Jonathan. What's been happening with the seafood industry in Victoria since then? Yeah, thanks, Kate, and good to speak to you all again. Um, so obviously, as as we all through throughout Victoria have been battling and and dealing with the the everyday reality of COVID and and what it looks like. Obviously, our, our, I think we chatted back in April when the the seafood industry was one of the first cabs off the rank in terms of impacted industries back in on the from the twenty fourth of January onwards. So we've we've got. As an industry, we're down to probably about 40% of volume in terms of 
seafood across the state, and and that's largely due to the shutdown of the the restaurant industry and the the food service sector. Um, we're looking at an approximate short-term reduction between 13 and, and 16 million dollars of gross value from our Victorian seafood producers, which is which is really hitting people and hurting people's bottom lines. Um, but, but as, as I think we discussed very quickly back in April, we've seen really good returns and, and really positive community connection to people shifting their, their offering to home delivery and click-and-collect services. And, and a lot of Victorians are now sitting there going, well, we're, we're stuck at home, we may as well eat local as opposed to doing what they normally do in terms of going out and eating out and about and not knowing what they're actually eating. So, Jonathan, just quickly, I'm just wondering, is there a sort of, I don't know, the two-sided coin? So, obviously, Victoria's been impacted by not being able to export stuff out. Has it happened the other way with things not being able to come in, therefore people are now more reliant on their local seafood, or is that not the case? Uh, so, we've certainly, we have certainly seen a, a decrease in imports. Um, I think... Also, from an industry perspective, there's been, again, the push towards people preferring to eat local has seen a lot of our a lot of our wholesale and retail sectors focusing more on local seafood and be that Victorian, be that Australian, um, with with that stuff unable, well, not unable to, but restricted in terms of its exit from the country and the export side of things. It's certainly seen more of the a higher value export uh, destined product like your abalone, rock lobster, eels, crabs, etc., being more readily available on the local market, which is really exciting for local people. Yeah, I imagine it would be. Um, and I'm guessing people are maybe having to change the way they view their seafood or cook their seafood because they do actually have these new products which potentially haven't been as accessible. But look, one of the things I spoke to you about in the lead up today was you mentioned that you'd recently completed, a, and this is a very exciting term, a supply chain analysis, which basically is yes. simply is getting you know, fish from the water to the table. Um, as I said, it's not a very sexy term, but when it comes to seafood, like it's critically important to get the freshest product to the table. And so what have been some of the, I guess, positives to come out of the pandemic around this locally? So I guess, as you say, some of the positives from us as industry, we've seen we've seen people uh, looking at how do they do things differently, which, again, as you mentioned, is why we undertook the, the supply chain analysis project, which is which is looked at ultimately the immediate impact and the blockages in the supply chain as we historically know it, and looking at what are some of those opportunities in terms of emerging industry from the pandemic, increasing our transparency and, as you mentioned, can, uh, direct consumer connectivity. So one of, the, one of the really exciting things that we're working on at the moment with industry, with government and more, more broadly with the community is looking to try and establish a Victorian seafood online trading platform where people will actually be able to, from the fisher to the general community, be able to sell direct. For those guys who don't have the right um, certification or if they're, out, if they're out fishing long hours, a lot of industry, the easiest way for them to get their product through to consumers 
is through the wholesale supply chain and, and it then gets processed, broken down and readily available for consumers. One thing we don't actually know is we don't have data and traceability around a lot of that, so looking at how we build that in for consumers to understand the people, the places and the product of what they're eating so that they can, can connect directly with their primary producer. So we're looking, looking to have that hopefully up and running within the next three to four months and obviously that's largely dependent on how we can get it funded and how we can make it happen. But you know, it, it ties really well in at the moment. You've got the government pushing um, yeah, Click for Vic and, and other initiatives around consumers wanting local product and we're looking at ways to make sure we can facilitate that. That's pretty exciting, Jonathan. It seems to be something that's really going to facilitate making something accessible that currently really isn't accessible for a lot of people. Well, I think I think it, it 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 is accessible at the moment, but people don't know where to get it. Mm. So I mean, we we had back on on Mother's Day, some of our wholesalers ran um, Southern Rock lobster specials through through their online home delivery services. Through some of that, the celebration side of things, we sold the state out of Southern Rock lobsters, and none ended up needing to go for export. Wow. So, in a sense, you're bringing back like the old um, boat tied up to the wharf for people to go and visit, but you're just tying it up online so people can jump in that way. That's certainly what we're trying to do. Again, as I said, connecting the people, the places, and the product, and then. As the state starts to reopen, you can go and visit the folks down in their regions and tied up to the wharf. Is this something that, I mean, once you've got something like this established, Jonathan, it's it can continue. <laughs> we we certainly see this as a long term measure. This is not a this is not a short term solution. And I think you know, Cage, you mentioned before the the export side of the industry. A lot of our industry they focus on export because it's it's a higher valued sort of where they get the best return for what they do. I actually believe that Victorians and locals are prepared to pay for what they know as local seafood. So we're trying to rethink how we how we shift away from an export-dominated sectors and looking towards more Victorian seafood being sold in Victoria. Jonathan, it's, it's, it's Dr. Beach here. I've been listening to this intently. It's a wonderful discussion. And it reminds me of one of the best sardines I had recently was from our local seafood shop. And I said to the guy, where, you know, where do these come from? They just look fantastic. They were sparkling. They looked glossy. And he said, these were pulled out of the water at about last night off Altona. And he knew that he knew the fisherman who got these. And this guy, guy had a license, of course, and was bringing these in. And they were just the best thing. And for me to know that these sardines were very, very local, fresh, and just wonderful eating was a beautiful thing. And to get that message out there, yeah, is is great. And I think, as, as you said, you, were, you actually asked where they came from. I think that's one thing that consumers in general, they assume that it's Australian or that it's local. And so making sure that you're asking for local and asking and engaging with your, with your local retailer, and that's where bringing it to an online platform where we are able to increase that transparency as to where things are from is, is what our local community and our consumers are demanding. And, and we're trying to bring that to them and bring it to their homes. 
And how fantastic, Dr. Beach, that he knew the answer to that question in that much detail too because I've asked that question before and the person on the other side of the counter has had no idea. So it's, it's awesome that they knew the answer. It was a pretty good fish shop. I, I'm, I'm so, so wanting to plug the name of it, but I won't. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wholesaler in Collingwood that deals with restaurants. There you go. <laughs> Excellent. Now, look, we've got to wrap up, Jonathan, but before we do, we're going to talk about the dreaded C word, Christmas. It, it's coming. We're hoping we can celebrate with family. What, what are we going to be looking forward to seeing from our local seafood producers this Christmas? Oh, look, Kate, it's, it's a really good question. And, and thankfully, we're, we're really spoiled in Victoria around the range and variety of species that we can actually ha- access. We've got, from November 15, the Southern Rock Lobster Fishery reopening. We're going to have... You know, we've got quota that's been rolled over for, from abalone and, and rock lobster from the last fishing season to this year. So the, the high-value stuff is going to be abundant. The, we've got spring coming, or we're meant to be coming up to spring. The weather doesn't really seem to be playing that way at the moment. With the big thumping snappers coming through, and really, it's just a matter of asking for local and buying buying what you can get that's local. Prawns are always a big fan. We've got from probably from early December through to through to Easter, we'll have the Victorian prawns running through out of Lake Entrance. There's there's a wealth of a wealth of seafood that's, that'll be available. It's just a matter of asking for it and identifying what's local and and going your hardest. Fantastic, thanks, Jonathan. We've almost turned into a um, segment on eat it. There, <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> look, thanks for your time today. Look forward to catching up with you again in the future and keep us posted on how things continue. I will do. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Excellent note to finish on and, and what a great message um, taking forward into the months ahead to buy local, buy local as much as you possibly can. Um, Jonathan Davey there from Seafood Industry Victoria. We just had a message from Nikki Tarr. She's actually posted some photos of jellies that she's seen um, near the seals when she's been snorkelling recently. So thanks, Nikki, for sending that through. That, uh, they're awesome. When my fish gets sick, I make it listen to 3RRR. Subscribe to RRR, the station for sick fish. <coughs> I think that's taking us back to Radiothon some time ago. All right, Dr. Beach, let's let's talk about um let's talk about sea serpents. Mysteries yeah, of the let's Deep. Talk about sea serpents, Bron. Uh, that little um sting there for worms before made me think that a lot of the sightings that we've had in you know, over the years of sea serpents, these undulating things in the water, the Loch Ness monster, we've all heard stories about that. Um, remind many people of worms. And there's a guy called Robert France who is at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, and he has made a bit of a job. About the last 10 years, he's published many papers, and this is the first one of his that I've seen. Looking at these anecdotal stories about sea serpents that people have seen for a couple of hundred years, Loch Ness Monster being a very famous one, which is, of course, uh, not out in the open ocean, but rather in um, in a lake in Scotland. And he's taken lots of these different anecdotal stories and he's analyzed them in detail and come up with the conclusion that they are nothing less than an historical reference to marine biota, that is, whales, turtles, basking sharks perhaps, getting caught up in fishing gear and that this fishing gear is dragged along behind them and this is what all these undulations are that we can see in the water. It's a pretty fascinating story that he comes up with Um, and it's 
more than a story. It's um, it's actually convincing me and it's convincing many people that this is, you know, what these sea serpents are about. So I'm sorry to dispel the myths that you've had about um, Loch Ness Monster and all of those things. But, um, yeah, it appears to be we've had marine biota animals getting tangled up in fishing gear for much longer than we thought. It's been assumed that because of the onset of plastics that we use in, um, in fishing gear, which only happened in the middle of the last century, so around the 1950s, that this has led to the entangled, entanglement, which is so upsetting and distressing for us to see, and of course, even more so for the animals that get caught up in all this fishing gear. But this has actually been going on for a long time. So it was assumed by many, many biologists that because old-style fishing gear, which is made of hemp and rope and hessian and stuff like that, uh, that this would rot in the water. But he's making a really cogent case here that these things that, you know, this fishing gear, of course, and hemp rope actually gets stronger when it's in the water, I realise now from reading a little bit about this, that these materials will stay in the water for many weeks, if not months and up to a year, and that they have been around particularly in the British Isles and off um, the United States, so in the Atlantic, on the Atlantic coast, where this, is guy, with, where this guy is from, that these materials have been used for back since oh, the early 1800s. And what they would have, like these fishing nets, would be like long ropes and they would have floats on them, like big corks or sometimes even glass blown balls. So they would be hollow in the middle. You know, the kinds of stuff that you see in old, you know, sea shanties and you know old, old bars where you'd have the you know the, the, the big balls with ropes around them that these were used these have been used as we know for many many years and there was an enormous amount of junk which was left in the ocean and which accumulated starting in the early 1800s and people started to use these and if you can imagine some poor unsuspecting say an animal like a basking shark which can get up to about nine seven meters in length basking sharks in fact there has been a basking shark fishing industry off the British Isles for a long time, about 150 years, um, I gather from this paper. So you can imagine a basking shark um, moving through and getting caught up in this kind of material and then dragging it along. And then you've got this long net, well, there's this long rope behind you with nets hanging down from it. And that long rope would be interspersed with these balls, these big floats, and sometimes even corks, barrels people even used sometimes. So you can imagine a, a shark which lives on the surface, a basking shark, about seven metres long. And by the way, basking sharks, their name is Cetorhinus maximus, which means pointy-nosed monster of great size. Huh. Um, <laughs> so you can imagine that dragging something along, people seeing it and thinking, oh my hell, yeah, my, my God, what is that? And so there's many, many fantastic observations that have actually been accumulated by two particular papers uh, well not papers but books so this guy has written these papers robert france most of his um these, these anecdotal stories that he's, that he's using and analyzing in great detail come from two books one which was published in um, 1968 by hervelmans is called in the wake of sea serpents uh, that's published from new york and then there's one by harrison which is back only in 2001 so 19 years ago called sea serpents and lake monsters of the british isles and harrison has got lots of stories in there about sea serpents and um it's really surprising as this guy points out that even harrison himself back in 2001 came really close to the truth but didn't realize what the truth was so he was he'd be so he'd be talking about 
Quotes, here's one from 1945. There we saw a creature with a head and four or five round humps, each of which was leaving a wake. And Harrison was analysing this in 2001. He said, clearly this sighting cannot be ascribed to low-flying birds, as the witnesses claimed, as they could see a wake being created by the movement of the creature in the water. The fact that each hump is described as creating its own wake would seem to indicate a number of different objects, since water displacement caused by the first object, the head and the neck, would create a wake with all of the following humps would pass through. And he came to the conclusion this was probably caused by a school of porpoises. No, this guy comes to the conclusion that it is, in fact, um, you know, these nets. And I just realized it's 9.59 and we're running out of time <laughs> as I'm concentrating <laughs> on this. But really wonderful paper. Um, for those of you who have a subscription to um, Fish Biology... Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.